Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law of the Universe and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by Prosperitas, an animation agency that can help you bring your company's ideas, values, products, and messages to life with the power of engaging videos. Whether you strive to win more customers, engage, or educate your audience, Prosperitas will craft each video specifically targeted to fit your brand and vision. Visit prosperitasagency.com today to learn more. That's P-R-O-S-P-E-R-I-T-A-S agency.com to find out how Prosperitas can create the best videos your company has ever had. My guest today is Michelle E. Dickinson. Michelle is a well-being strategist and passionate mental health advocate. She's also a TEDx speaker and a published author of a memoir entitled Breaking Into My Life. Michelle goes first and sees herself as the bridge that helps people get comfortable with their mental health so that they can reach out and get the support they need before they hit a crisis. She makes it okay to not be okay and thrives on making a real difference in the lives of others, especially around their well-being. After years of playing the role of child caregiver to her bipolar mother, Michelle embarked on her own healing journey of self-discovery. She went on to spend years working to eradicate the mental health stigma within her own workplace by elevating empathy and compassion, causing more open conversations, and leading real change in how mental illness is understood. She also knows firsthand what it feels like to struggle with a mental illness after experiencing her own depression due to challenging life events. This has provided her with a rich perspective. Michelle is out to do her part to eliminate the stigma by normalizing the mental well-being conversation within the workplace and beyond. She partners with innovative leaders to bring them her psychological resilience programs and mental health strategies to recenter employees and cultivate cultures of compassion. Her signature resilience webinar has made a positive impact on thousands of employees during COVID-19. Please join me in welcoming Michelle to the program today. Thank you so much for being here, Michelle. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here chatting with you today. Oh, me too. I'm such a big fan of mental health conversations and working to destigmatize everything. And, and you've had quite the path here. And I'd love to know what drove you to get into the mental health and wellness space. And what was that journey like for you? Yeah, it all started when my when I was working in my former company and somebody found out my story of growing up with a mother who had bipolar disorder 
and nominated me to give a TED Talk. I was thrust into center stage, so to speak, to tell my story. And then I just realized the power storytelling has and how it opened the door for other people to talk about it and how powerful that was. And if I could do make a difference and do that in 10 minutes on the TED stage, what could I do if I wrote a book? And that led me to write my memoir ultimately. And then I, I would use both the book and the TED Talk to cause conversations that were not going to happen. Absolutely. It sounds like an incredible journey. So how do you think we can best fix mental health in the workplace since there is such a huge stigma around it? And it's probably one of the places it's most needed, but one of the places it's hardest to find. Yeah, it's a very interesting conversation. We spend how many hours a day at work, whether it's virtual or in person, mostly now it's virtual. So that culture is so important and having an inclusive space where people don't feel like they have to put their game face on and fake it and pretend that they don't have an illness. That's such an important thing for employers to create. So cultivating compassion and genuine inclusivity for people of all abilities is I think the first step. And so how do organizations do that? I think it has to start with a remit from the highest level of the organization saying we are accepting of people of all abilities backed by policies and then backed by even personal storytelling of senior leaders to create an opening for people to just be able to talk about it and be themselves. Yeah, I think it is so important for people to be able to really lead from the front on that, where instead of just being like, hey, this is an inclusive environment. Hey, tell us your problems. If you don't have a leader that can really bring that vulnerability to the table, there's no one really setting the tone and, and it can't always fall on like HR, right? Because no. that is just, it doesn't really resonate as much with people. It's so true. When you have someone who's willing to tell their story, it creates a space for others to one, talk about it. And, and if we're talking about it, then there's less hesitation to, to even engage in a conversation with our leader. You can't just take a cold environment and expect someone to be willing to tell their leader that they're struggling with something. Their takes can, you have to do the conditioning of the space and build trust and build a normal narrative around brain health. And so how have you seen that sort of evolving in the last year? Like, obviously, there's been a ton of extra mental health issues, whether it's from people being out of work, or I'm sure most extroverts like myself, uh, unless it's unless you're a shy extrovert, not having human contact has been like a pretty big struggle. While on the other hand, you have a lot of introverts who are like, this is paradise. I love this. I don't want to go back to an office. And so it's it seems neither system, whether it's full remote or fully live, it doesn't work for everyone. And right. so are there ways to bridge that gap? Is it let everyone do their own thing to maximize what works best for them? Who do you see succeeding in business moving forward from a mental health perspective and shifting the conversation and shifting the dynamics of how businesses operate? I think you might have just asked me like five questions. <laughs> <laughs> I have a tendency to do that. <laughs> so, wait, so going back to the first part of what you were saying, I have to comment on. The CDC says that now because of the pandemic, one in three of us are dealing with either anxiety or depression. So if that many of us are have been affected, have our mental health has been affected by this pandemic, there has to be more that we're doing for people because this is an extraordinary 
time in the world and in our lifetime. So that's first and foremost. So what are we doing to, and, and the world is now working remotely. So you've now taken a human being that's a very, <laughs> that's a very connected animal and needs connection with other people. And you've asked them to be isolated. Now, thank, thankfully, we're coming out of this, but it does impact our well-being because we're not able to have that connection. There's a lot of things that can be done that companies can be doing to foster connection in a space where they're not seeing everyone every day. And then what was the second part of your question? Like, how do you see the, the actual workplaces evolving to meet those needs yeah. now that we COVID's really exposed, like everyone has really different needs, whereas before yeah. it was just like, you have to be seen, you have to do FaceTime. It's so true. Oh my goodness. We're going back to an entirely different environment. I'm part of many different HR communities and everyone's talking about what is the future. And and employees are saying, I'm never going to go back to work. I love this. This is, and I don't feel safe going back to work. I, I don't feel safe being in a conference room with 10 people because there's going to be people that don't want to be vaccinated or or are we going to mandate people are vaccinated? There's all of these variables. And I and my heart goes out to HR leaders that are trying to help steer the ship. And what do we do? How do we accommodate? How do we create a space for everyone? So I think what we'll probably wind up going back to is some type of a hybrid model where it, it, it can't be dictated necessarily unless it's like an industry where you physically need to be someplace. I think there's going to be have to be some type of a hybrid and there's going to have to be every situation is going to have to be looked at in a very unique through a very unique lens. And then you're going to have instances where employees aren't feeling like the company that they thought they were working for is the company they want to stay with. So you're probably going to see a lot of people moving around and saying, I'm going to choose a company that you know, supports 100% working from home. So I think it's really TBD, but it's really going to be a very different world. Yeah, I think that's true. Growing up as like, a, I don't know what they call it. I, I think of myself as a zennial, but apparently we're geriatric millennials now. And it's been interesting to see, yeah, like the boomer thing was like, you have to be seen and not heard. You got to be at the office. If you're not, if I can't see you, then you're not working. And I remember having several jobs where, I would get to the point after maybe six months where I could do my entire job in an hour or two a day. And then there was just this ridiculous sort of game of pretending to be working or looking busy. And I think that's a pretty common experience for a lot of people that when you're working to time and not to standard, you're just wasting so much productivity that could be used on a variety of other stuff, or you could be home with your family. And I see people now talking about it's not the office, it's the commute. It's just it's all the wasted time that goes yeah. on in like actually going to a centralized location. And I certainly think there's value in say, like creative teams working together. I think there's just something magical about doing that in person that is yeah. hard to replicate online. But for most by most people in uh, office jobs and everything that you're on a computer all day. Like there's absolutely no reasons. Just look at the actual work product and let everyone have a little more independence. So it's been yeah. interesting to see. Yeah. But at the same time, I, I will just say that since the pandemic began, a lot of people are now working around the clock. So they lost their commute. They lost the bookends of the day. And they're actually, from what the data shows and the articles that I've been reading whether it's McKinsey or Harvard, a lot of people are burning out because they're working around the clock. And then you factor in the fact that we weren't taking vacation. 
because we couldn't travel. And then they're home. And so they're all under the same roof with their family members. And that stress is there. So we, we definitely have an issue with people overworking because they don't have a place that they go to. So all of this feeds into mental health imbalance. Oh, totally. And I'm guilty of that myself. I'll just, I'll just keep working. Like, I'll, yeah. especially when you work for yourself, it's just like somebody's got to do it. And I got to keep at it yeah. and nobody else is going to take care of it. But I do wonder since we have swung from one extreme of just working in person and working ourselves to death 40, 68 hours a week for a boss to then doing that out of your own home. But like you said, we just literally couldn't go anywhere. And so now if we are re-emerging into this, oh, we can go somewhere, but you're still at home, will people be able to put up those guardrails for themselves to then be like, okay, I can just work nine to five or eight to six or whatever hours I want, but I'm going to leave the house. Like I'm going to go and meet people. I'm going to go and resume the activities I did before. And, and it makes me wonder if people in those kinds of jobs will be able to find that balance again, because like they get their social lives back. Whereas if you were working in a grocery store or a hospital or something, it's yeah, you're not, mm -hmm. you know, we're a long ways off from robots completely taking over all those fields that like, yeah, you're still gonna have to be there in person. But if you're just working behind a computer, I'm wondering if we can find that balance again. Yeah, it's so interesting. That is the work that I actually do. I teach people resilience and creating those boundaries, those healthy boundaries. Otherwise, boundaries in terms of like just managing your time better, managing the fact that you are getting away and getting fresh air so that you can come back and be that much more focused. So I think if you need boundaries both ways, making sure that you stay disciplined, but you also have boundaries to take care of yourself. So I think from the work that I've been doing, it's been more so take a break, stop working. But you're right, going back to when you can get out and go to a coffee house and go and see people that you miss, it could swing the other way. So I think it's all about having those structures in your life and prioritizing what really matters. And that's the other thing, prioritizing what matters. And I think this whole experiment, this whole experience <laughs> has been an experiment. And is this the work I really want to be doing? I think a lot of people are taking inventory and saying, you know what, when this pandemic's over, boom, I'm going to go do that thing because life's too short. So I think it's going to be a very interesting time coming out of this. Oh, definitely. So how do you coach people in terms of setting boundaries with obviously it's one thing to set your own boundaries, if you're self employed, you run your own company, but if you're going into maybe like a, you know, moderate to even higher stress environment, say like a, a large law firm or something like that, how do you coach people on like setting those boundaries? Is it something that really, you know, needs to occur alongside or along with something like a salary negotiation? Is there like a boundary negotiation that people should be really forcing on an employer? And if they're not open to it, try and find something else? Or? Yeah, I guess it's nowadays, I, the employers that are going to attract the best talent have to really rethink how they accommodate their people. I always say and pick your toys up and go someplace where they will. So it's one of those things you have to really say what works for you and to get the best performance out of you. And will that organization be tolerant of that? Be willing to say you have requests and they'll be met and your work will still get done. I think that at the end of the day, that's who's going to get the best talent are the employers that are going to work with employees so that they have the, they can get the best out of them because they're healthy mentally, physically, all of it. Absolutely. And so we've talked a lot about employers doing this and, and having this go in the workplace. But 
we don't really want it to just be something like you experience once you, you know, turn 16, 18, 21, whenever you enter the workforce. How important do you think it is to start integrating this early and earlier into like public education? Oh, Lord. Oh, my goodness. Very important. I think we have to do our part to really empower our kids and teach our kids a normal narrative around well-being, a normal narrative around expressing how they're doing. We have, we as adults need to model good mental health hygiene and really show them that it's okay to talk about when we're struggling and when we're, when we're not feeling well and what we can do to feel better, what we have control over, giving them full control over maybe going and doing a, a few minute breathing exercise or a meditation to give them back the power that they have over themselves. I think we have to do a better job for our kids. And it all starts with what we are doing as adults. They're watching. So modeling that is the best approach. Yeah, it feels like such a heavy lift, you know, just because I feel like millennials by and large are the first generation like on mass to be like, hey, we're going to break the cycle of physical abuse, of mental abuse, the things that we've done since we were pre homo sapien primates, just millions of years in the past. And we're now saying, okay, the buck stops here. But then you still have people with the mindset of, oh, my parents spanked me. So it's fine. Suck it up or whatever. We these things just get imbued into children at such a young age that then it's, it's no wonder they just start repeating these same cycles. And we do just have to go back further and further. And it's almost important, I think, to not just educate our kids, but the one thing we don't do at all in this country is educate parents. It's the one thing that's like probably the biggest responsibility in life. And yet we're just like, hey, go and wing it. And most people have no idea what they're doing. And just a lot of people, depending on like the random kid you end up with, maybe they're really easy to deal with, maybe they're not. But if they're not, it just usually goes pretty bad if you can't figure out how to reach that kid and how to fix yourself and deal with your own inner child to just be a better parent. It's so true. Everything you say is so true. And when I'm teaching my resilience program to corporate employees, I mention that to them because I've had people come to me and say, but my kid, if my kids are struggling or my kid is annoying or my kid this, my kid that. And the first thing I have learned through all of the work that I've done and the clinicians I've had the pleasure of working with and the leaders in the space around kid well-being and youth and adolescent mental health is you have to be modeling that. You have to be normalizing the conversation. Don't tell a child what to do if you're unwilling to do it. And like you just said, you have to be brave enough to look in the mirror and be and, and become more self-aware and be comfortable talking about your own past traumas and mental health and getting the support you need. Because if you do the work, you're going to show up better for yourself, for your family and for your children. But it takes courage to do that. And a lot of people just want to take their child and put them into a special setting or give them a, a therapist and walk away. We really need to show them what it looks like. Oh, it's all the therapy in the world isn't going to matter if when they come home and they're spending time with you, you're just continuing to get annoyed with them or not sitting with like your own discomfort because it's yeah. just, it might've been the way you were treated as a child. And so you're like, oh, this is okay. I like, I'm an adult. I made it to adulthood and I'm okay. I'm still a living, breathing human. So I can treat my child this way, but it's actually, you can do better. I remember being spanked as a child and was always like, I will never do this as a parent. And then becoming a parent, it was like, oh, 
that's not hitting your kids like that's table stakes that's just such a minimal like nothing to achieve it's really understanding oh the emotional as as horrible as physical trauma is the emotional trauma can often be worse because you'll just engage in it regularly you'll lose your patience with your kids even yelling is like super traumatic but we don't think of it because it's been so normalized forever it's true it's it's definitely true we only know what we know growing up and until someone tells us that's not right or not normal, that's what we project onto our into, onto our children. Just for a moment, my mother, her bipolar disorder was her illness and her abusive nature came from her illness, but it also came from how she was raised. A lot of time we spend looking at the effects someone we love has on us and that's all we can see instead of unpacking that and saying, that's what they know to do because that's they're a recipient of what their parents did. And when you can take a step back and recognize they did the best they could with what they knew based on what they experienced, then you can start to understand it. I'm not saying it for, it, it's easy to forgive, but you can really just get present to we only know what we know and that's it. Yeah, I think it does help just to have, like you said, like it's you're not going to necessarily immediately forgive someone, but just having that perspective gives you a little more confidence to just go through the world like with those experiences. And it's, it's really been incredible. I turned 18 just a few days before 9-11. So like my entire adult life has just basically been a shit show, like on a global scale. And you look at the the downturn, the Great Recession, 08-09, then you look at like the pandemic the last year, and we talk about all these things of like people being traumatized by all this. But lately, I've been talking to a lot of people and really thinking a lot about how we are actually still living with like the effects of the Great Depression, because all the boomers were raised by people in the Great Depression that either they developed a scarcity mindset around money, or they just didn't have enough food. So they have different relationships with that. And so they've brought that all into the 21st century. And it's we still have to deal with that. And so it's like, oh, man, we're going to be dealing with this for decades and decades more, because it takes so long to just break these cycles that just get get into everyone. I think about like my kids now, like I have a five year old and a seven year old. They just out of nowhere, hey, you got to wear a mask every single day. And they're just they've been troopers about it. Most kids have. But then you know, doing virtual schooling and all sorts of nonsense. I was just like, hey, other countries like Scandinavia, they don't teach kids to read till they're like seven. So like, how about we just chill? Right? Like, why don't we just kids are gonna be traumatized enough by a pandemic? Like, why don't we just have camp and just not worry about the learning side? Just let everyone have fun and enjoy themselves. And we're just watching kids try to get boxed into let's recreate an in person schooling like online. And it was just like, this is like absolute nonsense. It's just who knows like what the after effects of that are going to be that we're going to see over the next like decade plus. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think we won't know that for a long time, but yeah, it's, it, this is, this has been one of the biggest challenges I think I, I know I will ever experience in my lifetime. I think it's very easy to go down the rabbit hole of victim and be like, Oh, we're screwed. This is really terrible. Or we could mm-hmm. look at the opportunities. And I know, for me and my mental health and my mindset, I've been trying really hard to try to find the silver lining. Friday here in New Jersey, we don't have to wear masks if we've been vaccinated. We can go dancing. There's, they're saying that it's going to be like the Roaring Twenties. Everyone's going to be having fun again and enjoying life and savoring life after not being able to do so much for so long. And the, just the joy and the appreciation for health 
and 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 the fact that we're going to be able to see our friends. So I think just trying to keep our keep for me keep my mind in what's working and what's good and really does help me uh, avoid going down the rabbit hole of what is this going to look like in 10 years? How is this going to affect worry won't really make that any different? Oh, absolutely. I agree. Like mindset is everything. And I think there's definitely going to, it's going to be an, um, an even more interesting decade now. And I've joked with some of my friends that there's going to, we're going to start having like cuddle orgies because people are so just deprived of oxytocin. <laughs> like they just like need to spoon with someone or hug someone. Right? It's like non-sexual, just, Hey, let's all touch each other again, because it's like, as a very physical and social animal, not doing that writ large for this long is like, really devastating especially if your love language is physical touch or you're yeah. hardcore extrovert it's like this year has just been killer and but i think yeah i've lived and worked and deployed to some of the poorest countries in the world and you'll find people with literally nothing who are happier than people with everything and so yeah. it really is just all about the mindset and how you can frame mm -hmm. things and being you know grateful for what you do have and so i think you do see this sort of bifurcation of people who have felt more victimized by the last year versus people who have turned it into they have more of a survivor's mindset, a challenge yeah. mindset. That they're like, hey, like, how can I get better? How can I come out of this improved, even with the massive carnage that's gone on? And so I think it's going to make for a really interesting decade. And yeah, I just got to go to I'm a big I love raves and love electronic dance music and stuff and got to go to the first show in like 12 or 18 months that I've been to. And it was like, oh my god this oh my is god. so incredible <laughs> it's just we're out here and we're dancing and so then you're just like oh my god this is i miss it so much and yeah i just think this it's going to be an interesting summer because at least here in the u.s we are like getting to a point obviously like there's a lot of carnage going on in places like india now that are probably haven't even seen quite the worst of it but hopefully they're able to get through it but i think the u.s is ready to just go go all out now yeah, <laughs> so i think you're right i think you're right people are ready yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. So I'd love to know what are some bad recommendations that you hear in your profession and area of expertise? Bad recommendations? I don't know exactly what you mean, like bad Like sort of like things you hear people say about like mental health or things that you're just like, oh no, please ignore that. Do not listen to that. That will not help you. <laughs> There's a ton of negative information. I don't know. I... <laughs> Sorry, I don't even give it attention to be able to regurgitate it for you. I'm so focused on helping people like point their mind in the right direction. I don't know that I've heard specifically bad advice. I think the biggest mistake we can make as a society is to recognize someone you care for is not themselves and look away or step over it and make the assumption that someone else is going to check on them. So I'm always promoting, have the courage to just say, hey, I notice you're not 100%, like you're not your bubbly self or you're not your normal self. Are you okay? Because when we make the assumption someone else is checking on them, that's the biggest mistake we can make because maybe, maybe not, and maybe they're going to stay in their head and not talk to anyone. And that's the worst place you can be when you're struggling. Oh, definitely. <laughs> so... I'd love to know how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite failure? Oh my goodness. Let's see. So it's May of 2021. In May of 2019, I went to divorce court on a Monday and divorced my ex-husband. And two days later, I lost my job. 
So mm-hmm. <laughs> in one week, I lost a husband and a job and had to figure it out and had to figure out what I was going to do, how I was going to recreate myself. So if in, in that moment, I was able to lean into some of the tools that I had that I learned along the way and the power of the mind and the ability to create from nothing, the power of creating from nothing. And that's what I did. That's what I did. It's not easy, but when you go that far down, there's really not much further to go. You really have one option and that's start to rebuild and start to figure it out. And fortunately, I was able to do that. I surrounded myself with friends. I surrounded myself with family and I just plotted forward. And just, I had that little picture of the fish from Nemo on my wall for the longest time that said, just keep on swimming. And that's what I did. That's awesome. So if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and why? It's okay to not be okay. Why? Because I think we all need permission to not be okay. It's like it's an embarrassment or a weakness or some convoluted idea to not be 100% and occur to the world like you have it all together. Look at social media and the constant subliminal comparison that we're doing to someone else's life. I think we need the permission to give ourselves grace and just say, I am not okay. It's okay to not be okay. Because when you can acknowledge it's okay to not be okay, then maybe you're going to reach out and, and get some type of support or have a conversation with someone you trust. Great answer. I love that. So what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? I would say The Four Agreements, um, Asking It's Given, and Byron Katie, Loving What Is. She's great. She's great. Yeah. And so I'd love to know who have been some of your heroes throughout your life and how did they help or inspire you? I would say some, probably some of my earlier bosses that gave me a shot. One of my first jobs that I had right out of high school, I didn't have an education, a college education, was a man named Jack (laughs) who gave me a chance to just do some grunt work at IBM. And he knew I, he knew I was right out of high school, but he gave me a shot and he believed in me. And and probably my first boss in one of my big corporate companies as a secretary who couldn't type with no education, he gave me a shot. So these are people that just extended themselves and gave me a chance to prove that I was hungry. I, I don't think I'll ever for, forget them for wanting to help me. And some female, maybe some female leaders and along the way, mentors that I had along the way that just encouraged me to just go for my dreams and be ambitious. And it was okay to get, to get impatient. And I would get bored in my jobs and was made to feel that there was something wrong about that. And when I would talk to a female mentor I had, she would say to me, it's okay. It it shows you have incredible ambition and you should live into that ambition. So, yeah. So powerful. Nothing yeah. like having someone, yeah, give you a chance you you think you don't deserve at the time, and then just being able to show up for that and perform is be so transformative. Yeah. So, what's one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And feel free to interpret the word investments as broadly as you like. In myself, I would say in myself, I have never regretted a dime I have spent on my development. 
So I know people might say cryptocurrency or real estate or gold. I'm going to say in myself because every single time I invested money into myself that I didn't have, I never regretted it because it always served me in some way. Whether it was a course or a Tony Robbins seminar that I was like, how much you want for that? I've never regretted it because it's always made me a better person. So I would say absolutely one of the best investments is growing and learning and advancing your own, your own mindset and your own knowledge and wisdom. Great answer. Mm. So in the last five years, what have you become better at saying no to? What have I become better at saying no to? Hmm. I would say putting other people's needs before my own. And that's all rooted in growing up with a mom who had bipolar disorder because I always put her, I was taught to always put the needs of her first to keep harmony in the home. And that followed me into my adult life where I was always on eggshells around my ex-husband. I was always placating or people pleasing to keep harmony instead of speaking my truth and honoring what I wanted and my own needs. So I would say definitely saying no to people pleasing and yes to what I wanted and needed. And that really it reminds me of somewhat analogous to the conversation we were having earlier in terms of, yeah, what happens with kids and like how much, obviously you had an ex extreme example, but even kids that have parents that don't have mental illnesses, one of the things that children do is they just like adapt to mirror that parent in some way or whatever that parent needs, like that child will seek to give it. I think that's why like a lot of kids that come from families like divorced homes, they end up like as comedians or something, right? Like they, if they have like depressed parents or there's other like strife in the home, like they're, they go to humor and comedy and trying to make their parents laugh, just make their parents smile. Cause even that like little moment can be so important. And it's really incredible to watch kids three, four or five years old, that young, be able to like have such a sophisticated learned response to like dealing with their environment. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. We're sponges. Kids are sponges. They just pick up. Totally. You're a parent. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Michelle, what are your go-to self-care strategies, tactics, techniques? Oh, wow. Okay. So I used to be really bad at this because I'm an entrepreneur. So I used to be like, just like everyone else and grinding it out, working hours and hours and then I started to realize that it wasn't going to support me in the long term. <laughs> so I now I try really hard to multiple nights a week, take a bubble bath. I know it sounds like cliche and like a bubble bath isn't going to solve everything, but let me tell you, it does help me. So I do bubble baths. And then on Sundays, I make it all about self-care Sunday. So I don't work. I make that day a day where I do not work. So Lately, I've been addicted to going to Korean spas because it's like it's a commitment of at least a four hour block to my health. And I always walk out feeling amazing. So that's been my jam. And then meditation and gratitude. I have a five minute journal on my phone. It's an app called the five minute journal. And every morning I grab my phone and before I'm find myself scrolling on social media, I'll log three things I'm grateful for and three things that are going to, that I'm going to do in the day. And then one affirmation. 
And that just sets my mindset in the right direction before I do anything that isn't going to help me like check email or whatever. So I do that. And then I'm trained in TM. I don't always do TM. What I've been doing is some mindfulness meditation with this amazing teacher that my mentor told me about on Insight Timer, Sarah Blondin. She's an amazing meditation instructor. And so I've been trying to get in a few minutes with her every morning to just set my mind in the right direction. You said the magic letters. I love TM. <laughs> I just <laughs> I just learned back in February and I'm a certified yoga teacher. I've you know practiced various forms of meditation for you know, probably over a decade and even trying to do 10 minutes a day. I don't think I've ever gone more than 90 days straight without missing. It just, you just and even those 10 minutes sometime, it's just be like a huge struggle. And I still always felt like, okay, like when's, when's the breakthrough? Like when am I hitting the next level or something? Do I need to go sit and just go join an ashram and just sequester myself to reach enlightenment and what's going to happen? And as I was starting my own business, I was like, like you said, I was like, all right, I'm going to make one investment in myself and I'm going to learn TM as I'm Mm -hmm. starting this journey. And literally the first day, it's just like, we start it. She teaches me how to do it, gives me a mantra and I go, and then she comes back in the room and I was like, what the fuck was that? I was just like, are you kidding me? And I was just like, instantly, I'm like, oh my God, this is what I've been missing. This is the yeah. thing that I knew existed yeah. and yeah. couldn't ever really express it, couldn't ever reach it. Yeah. And then you just find out it's like this sort of like latent superpower hidden inside every person that can do this. And you're just like, what? And, and now I'm like, oh, uh, this needs to be a human. We need to. And of course, it's so loaded up with just, oh, this is religious or whatever, even though it's not. And so it's just like not. so hard even to try and get it. Hell, we can't even get yoga into schools because people are like, oh, they're going to brainwash us into Hinduism or something. And it's just like, but yeah, it's, it's so crazy, like how transformative <laughs> it is and the different things that come about. And for me, it's just it always gives you what you need, no matter what, so, like, even if you don't transcend. And, yeah. So somebody wants to explain TM as being able to take an hour nap in 10 minutes. That's how how restorative it is. That's literally how restorative it is. Like you, you wait, you come out of this, it depends on how deep you go and you come out and because I've experienced some depth. Now I'm not as religious about it as I should be, but when I was doing it religiously, I was amazed at how, how deeply I would go into the meditative state and how mm-hmm. refreshed I would feel coming out. Yeah, absolutely. The first time for me, it was just like, yeah, I dropped all the way down to the bottom of the ocean. and was just like, oh, like, yeah. cool. And yeah. then, and then of course, like you start to, then you experience it. So then you can start to expect it and that can like sabotage you because you're just like expecting absolutely. that to happen, which of course, like on the way down, like all this other stuff is coming up. And so I'm like, I was like going through a divorce and started a new company. Like I've got just tons and tons of stuff going on. And for me, it was just like, oh, wait a minute, I'm actually still getting what I need, even if I don't fully transcend every time, because I'm like, just starting the process. And then it shows me like, oh, hey, this is what you need to deal with. And I remember with mindfulness and other forms of meditation, it's go either observe your thoughts or do this or that to your thoughts. And with TM, it's just so much like, Hey, don't worry about it. Just whatever. Just let it all go. And then it's like, oh, okay, it's no big deal. If I spend 20 minutes thinking about what I have to do for work, I still feel great afterwards. And it was funny because you mentioned the sleep thing. And my teacher was like, hey, don't use this as a substitute for sleep. 
even though it is. And I was like, oh, you shouldn't have said anything. <laughs> I was like, I've had insomnia like for most of my life. And like even last night, I was just like up all night, like work on some stuff. And then I'm like barely got like, an hour or two of sleep. And then I was like, oh, I get a little TM session. And then as soon as I'm done, it's just, oh, good to go. I just slept eight hours, like no problem. And yeah, it's so wild because I think about you look at the commercials or like the little ads like on Facebook and elsewhere. It's like Jerry Seinfeld or Oprah or whatever celebrity being like, hey, this stuff's really great. And I'm like, oh, my God, all of you are just like massively you're saying it's amazing, but you're still massively underselling this like. It is so absolutely incredible. I, like I said, like I used to struggle to do 10 minutes a day and now I do 20 minutes twice a day and I can't imagine not doing it for the rest of my life. And yeah. after I learned, I found out like back in the day when the Maharishi like came to America and met the Beatles and all that stuff. And there was like a person learning TM every minute that my father had actually learned how to do TM. And I was like, wait, what? Like you didn't like why aren't you still doing this? This stuff is amazing. And now I'm just like, wait, did he like reach some like level of waking transcendence? Because of course, like, that's the whole point, right? It's like you do it long enough, and you just stay on that level, like even in your waking life. And that's the whole point of yeah, you can go to an ashram and sequester yourself from the world, and you can reach enlightenment, but like, you're not helping anyone. And it's really all about like still being back out in the world and being able to like share your light with the world and helping other people. And that's like what the real purpose of life is. Right. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I think the thing that had me drawn and it's funny, the thing that had me drawn to TM was that all of these successful people, like you mentioned all of the... um, I'm sorry. I have my window open. That's bad. Like you said, Jerry Seinfeld and Ellen and all those people were doing it. But then all of the lawyers, the stressed out lawyers in my community, I remember going and learning with a group of people. Actually, you you learn one-on-one, but then you come back for the follow-up sessions and every single person in the seat was an attorney. And I'm like, look at that. (laughs) And they're getting the benefit and they're here. And I thought, I think about how stressful being an attorney is I was like this has to work I have to do it (laughs) so yeah yeah good stuff yeah oh totally and it was just amazing I'm like okay there's a lot of evidence I've heard from a lot of people that it works but then just like when you actually experience and you're just like are you kidding me (laughs) this is ridiculous and it's just so easy and yeah love it can't get enough (laughs) let's see so I would love to know when you're feeling like overwhelmed, unfocused, what do you do? Are there questions that you ask yourself to work through different things? And how do you approach that? A lot of times when I'm feeling overwhelmed, for me, it's all about going out into nature. I don't really, I don't really have a routine. I I feel like for me, if, if I get overwhelmed and I'm strung out, for me, the answer is just get out and go for a walk, go to the park, go walk around the pond, just, Stop like spinning in circles, basically at your desk, trying to figure out what to do first and go and clear your head and come back. It's either that or go for a run or just something to change up the space and then come back with a fresh perspective. That's typically what I do to get myself out of a funk. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Walking is probably like one of the most underrated, like simple human activities that I feel like in this country, at least we don't really have a huge walking culture. So we take it for granted. But I feel like a lot of the places where they just walk everywhere. It's like, 
Yeah. They're a lot happier. There's a lot less stress. And it's almost uh-huh. like nothing like a, a good long walk can't solve. Because it's like if you get upset, you get angry or uh, whatever, feeling some strong emotion about something and like you go for a walk and it's, it's going to fix it. And if it doesn't, just keep walking. But eventually, right. like you're going to work through it because it is just like a great form of like kinetic meditation, right? Just like moving meditation. It's great. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. So we're getting close to the end of our time, but before we do, I have a few more questions. I'd love for you to tell me a little bit about your work with careforyourpeople.com. Oh, sure, sure. So this was born out of out of my desire to create more, more support for people to recenter employees in the workplace. When we originally went into lockdown, my clients were telling me we, we need something to bolster psychological resilience in our people. We're worried about them. They're no longer in the office. What do you have? And I was like, I definitely have a tool bag of, of resilience tips from all the work that I've done, all the therapy that I've done and in my own life and what I've navigated with depression. So that program, Protecting Our Happy, was born, the resilience program, and it's a workshop. And I, I delivered it throughout the pandemic to many of my clients because they just wanted their people to feel cared for and, and help them be like centered, get them re-centered because they lost so much of their regular routine. So careforyourpeople.com really just highlights why we need to do more for our people now with the incidence of burnout increasing, with one in three navigating depression or anxiety and us still not talking about it. So that just highlights why we need to do it and then how to reach me to uh, find out more about the programs that I offer, all kinds of programs from COVID fatigue to unblurring the lines between home and work to the resilience program, all kinds of workshops that are really going to help cultivate a conversation around well-being and really empower employees with strategies and tools to really uh, own their well-being uh, prior to hitting a crisis. Sounds like really vital work, definitely make an impact there. I love this work though. Like I love this work and it's important and it's timely. So it's like the perfect harmony for me is I get to be the difference for people and really help empower them and and help them feel better and just remind them of things they can do that they may have just forgotten about that are so simple. Just like you were saying, like going for a walk, like just do it. Yeah, absolutely. So what advice would you give to a smart, driven high school or college graduate that's about to enter the real world? Yeah, just be an have an open mind. Bring all of your ambition. Be curious. Find a mentor. Find a mentor you can stay connected to who can help you navigate what you're about to navigate. Mentors are priceless. My gosh, I wish I had a mentor when I was that young, always do your best and recognize things don't always come easy. You have to work for them. It's, I know we live in an instant gratification society, but sometimes it's more about experiencing the journey and enjoying the journey as you are going toward the destination. Oh, absolutely. I have a great shirt. I love it says the pursuit is happiness. It's just, it's all about the journey. Yeah. So Michelle, this has been an awesome conversation. Uh, it's been great speaking with you. So this brings me to my final question. And that is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Kindest thing. 
Wow, there's so many. There's so many. I don't know. That's really a hard question. There's so many. I probably, probably my stepmom honoring my father when we lost him. She just honored him and just like really like took me on as a daughter and just treated me like I was her daughter and made sure that I was okay, no matter what. She still makes sure I'm okay every day. And I really didn't know her before I lost my father. So I'm really grateful for the kindness that she's extended to me as a stepdaughter. So that's probably like the first thing that comes to mind. Powerful. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to get to speak with you. Oh my God, you're so welcome. Thank you for inviting me. And I've enjoyed this immensely. I really appreciate it. Oh, of course. So today's episode was brought to you by Prosperitas, specializing in making stunning videos to help you win more customers and look your best online. Visit prosperitasagency.com today to learn more. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high-quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash the LUE podcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Peace.